Chapel, Mason City. First Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Today's passage, interestingly enough, addresses two subjects. And the first one is, is how should I live in a country with a government that doesn't line up with Christianity? Number two, how should I respond to an employer that may be harsh towards me because of my faith? So those are the two things today. This text, I just want to put this right out there. It's a little more than challenging. And it's, to some people, it might be downright offensive. Uh, but teaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, that's, that's what you get. We have to deal with all of it, right? Because we believe God put it all there for a reason. And so that's where we are today. First Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. But as bond servants of God, honor all people, love the brethren or the brotherhood, excuse me, Fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults and you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Father in heaven, we approach your word today with reverence and fear of the Lord, respect, Lord. And I pray, Father, as it is a challenging subject and very challenging text today, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, just to receive what you have for us. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who's our teacher, our guide. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that you have given us your word, that we're not left as orphans, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, to be our helper. And so we pray, Lord, today against distractions. May our ears be tuned to grace we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Because God has called us to represent him in this world with Jesus as our example, we are to display attitudes of submission to authority. And so we'll see that in the passage today. Number one, the submission to government that is expected. Number two, the submission to masters slash employers that is expected. And number three, the submission of Jesus as an example explained. Now, I want to put this out there right away in part two, where he's talking about servants and masters. He's talking about slaves and masters. So the illustration, uh, you know, the, the parallel to employers, it breaks down at a certain point. And I'll explain that when we get there. But the way that we apply these passages is to kind of glean and kind of take out some things that would apply to us in an employment situation. So I just want to put that out there ahead of time. Uh, because some of the language in here is just pretty tough. Like this is probably one of the tougher passages for people uh, to, to really grab a hold of today. How do you deal with a government that is not lining up with Christianity? 
Um, we can't really think about that. We can't really fathom this because we've grown up in a Judeo-Christian place, which is changing to a secular, uh, more of a Greek-style, pluralistic place. And then how do we deal with employers that are harsh to us? And, and I will say, some of the examples that Peter gives in here put any of my excuses to shame. And so I just want to say that ahead of time. This is a challenging text. So the submission to government expected. Here's a command to submit to authorities in verses 13 and 14. The context, I just want to give you this. Peter wrote this letter to help readers in Asia Minor to find their ultimate hope in Jesus Christ during difficult times. And you guys know the setting. You've been here the last few weeks. These were trying times, times of Christian persecution, imprisonment, and enslavement. Christians faced rejection from their families, discrimination in the workplace, brutality from law enforcement, who were supposed to protect them. What's more, the entire Roman Empire was under the rule of Nero. He was violent, he was unstable, he was an anti-Christian emperor. Therefore, verse 13, when it starts with therefore, you ask what's it there for? Look at verse 11 and 12 of chapter 2, please. He says, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. That's where he's taken off with the therefore. He's connecting this next thing because he says, as Christians, I want you to have uh, you know, good conduct among the unsaved. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man. Peter calls his readers to willingly submit to all earthly laws and authorities. That's what he's talking about. Now, it's not because all of these laws and all of these authorities are right, but notice what he says there, for the Lord's sake. This is for the sake of their witness in this world. Although our true citizenship is in heaven, praise God, we are called to be model citizens while on earth. He says, whether to the king as supreme, verse 14, or to governors. This is a way of saying all ruling authorities. Jesus puts it this way in Matthew twenty-two twenty-one. He says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 2, Paul says, paraphrasing, he says, pray for all kings, all people who are in authority, that it may go well with us so we could live peaceable lives. He says, pray for all of them. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, it reads as follows. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. So Paul, Jesus all talking about the same sort of concept. Let me remind you that when they say these things, they are talking about the most harsh, oppressive, evil government that you have ever, you can't even fathom the evil of the Roman Empire. That's why I say this is shocking. This is, this is a radical, shocking passage. He says, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise for those who do good. Notice that there, verse 14. So essentially what he's getting at, in generally speaking, governments punish evil and they reward good, generally speaking. You know, you think about the alternative if there's lawlessness. The Roman Empire, harsh as it was at the time, brutality, perversion, these things, it's still better than lawlessness. 
right? And that's what he's getting at here. That's what Peter's saying is just in general, the, the laws, you know, you're, you're grateful to have laws of the land, really, if you don't see it. You really are. Verses 15 through 16, here's the reason now that he gives for submission to the authorities. Look at verse 15, please. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, these rumors going around in this day, remember some of the context in Peter's day, they were saying these Christians, they surrender to a different king. They worship a different king. Uh, some were even saying they're cannibals because they eat flesh and blood in their communion services. Uh, some other people were saying they want to overthrow the government. You know, some other people, uh, you know, were saying other rumors than that as well. So how were they to deal with this? Well, Literally, what they are to do is to submit to every ordinance of man, and look at what it says there, that they will put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That word silence is an interesting word. It literally means to muzzle. And I brought a picture of what this literally looks like. Um, that's a muzzle. And so literally that's... Uh, it is kind of funny. It's kind of, I don't know. You, just, uh, you didn't expect that, right? This is, here it is, <laughs> you know, this horse with the purple muzzle. But it keeps his mouth shut. And that's what Peter is saying. He's saying your good actions, your submission to the government and all of this, he says that what it's going to do is when people hear these rumors about you as a Christian, they're going to examine your life and they're going to see how you live. And that's essentially going to put a muzzle on people that, you know, would speak disparagingly about you or about Christ. Nowhere in Scripture does God permit anarchy or revolution. God's will is that you and I live in such a way that onlookers have nothing evil to say about us. In other words, we are to be model citizens upholding laws and ordinances. Verse 16, and he says, As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. So what he's saying there is, like, remember what Paul said in another place? He says, all things are lawful for me, but yet not all things are expedient. All things are lawful, yet not all things edify. So for a Christian, it's not a question of, you know, is this good or bad? The question is, does it edify? Does it build up? By the way, that's how a Christian should be answering very practical questions of life. Have you noticed yet as being a Christian that the Bible doesn't answer every single question that you have? Right? So the way you answer that is you don't say, you know, the, the first place to start is not, is it good or bad? The first place to start is, does it honor Christ? Does it build me up? Does it contribute to my witness? Does it add to my church? Does it add to my witness in this community? That's the way that you answer the question, should I do this or shouldn't I do it? You know, the, the, you know, the, the wristband that said, what would Jesus do? I mean, it's profound. God obviously does not support every law or ordinance of a government. Now, that's not the point. I do need to make this note. There are times in the scriptures given as examples um, when civil disobedience is appropriate. You remember back in the book of Exodus when the Pharaoh, um, you know, he wanted to wipe out the, the Jews. Um, by the way, people have been trying to do that throughout history. This, you turn on the TV, you see people trying to wipe out the Jews. That's been going on ever since the, you know, Garden of Eden, right? Technically. But the book of Exodus, Pharaoh says, kill all the boys. Remember what the midwives did? They said, we're not going to do that. And so they uh, engaged in civil disobedience. In the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you guys need to bow to this image. Oh, we're not going to do that, king. 
you can throw us into the furnace and our God will deliver us. But even if God doesn't deliver us, we're not going to bow to your image. Daniel, also in the book of Daniel, told, you can't pray anymore. You can't pray to your God. Daniel goes home, pulls open the blinds, starts praying. (laughs) Book of Acts, they're told, hey, don't preach anymore in this name. He says, look, man, whether we should follow you or follow God, you be the judge. And they go out and they start rejoicing that they had been beaten for the Lord. And they start preaching the word of God uninterrupted. When a government makes a law that directly contradicts a command of Scripture, I'm going to engage in civil disobedience. Also, there's a call for speaking against injustices. John the Baptist had no problem telling Herod that he was in an incestuous relationship that was not lawful with his relative Herodias. So there is a place for that as well. But I would tell you, be ready to suffer the legal repercussions and be prayerful. Remember John the Baptist, what happened to him? He got his head cut off and it came on a platter into his drunken orgy. I don't know why I laughed at that, actually. (laughs) I laugh because it's so uncomfortable. Like when you read that in the Gospel of Mark, you go, oh, this is just gross, man, how evil people are. John the Baptist, not scared to speak out against the most powerful person in the world at that time. He lost his head for it. Verse 17, a fourfold summary of our submission. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. I think there's 11 words somewhere around there. Four things being said there. Easy to write, easy to say, hard to do. Love, or he says, honor all people. All people. What does it mean to honor and to respect someone? All people. Not people that only agree with you. Not people that come up in your, because of your algorithm. Not people that feed your confirmation bias. Not people that say the things you want to hear. The people that you disagree with the most. The people that may even get under your skin the most. The people that are just absolutely heinous, engaged in evil practices, honor all people. All people. That's what a Christian's called to do. This message, by the way, is so, not my words, this scripture is so prophetic for today because Christians, listen, are being warped by politics. Politicians are manipulating algorithms and media and marketing to make you believe things that 10 years ago you would not have felt as strongly about. I'm going to leave that there. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Sacrifice. Give your life for the church. Give your life for these people sitting around you. Give your life to them. Serve them. Love them. Fear God. Holy honor, reverence. Bow before him. And he says, honor the king. That's the president. Yes, you say that guy? Yes, that guy. That guy. Just a reminder, when he says, honor the king, Peter would eventually lose his life. Remember, he's martyred upside down. His wife put to death right before his eyes. He encourages her and says, remember the Lord as his wife is being 
martyred, killed right before his face. And this guy says, honor the king, you know, or, or uh, yes, honor the king. So I, it's an incredibly difficult text. So the dilemma, how do these Christians live in such a hostile environment? His solution is clear. You submit to every government ordinance, not out of agreement, but to be a beacon of Christ's light in a dark world. Rebelling tarnishes Christ's name. As a Christian, you want to make sure that the only point of contention that somebody could have with you would not be your rebelliousness, but it would be, if anything, because you live a moral, upright, clean life that shines the light on their darkness. The early church, if you've read your Bible carefully, you'll notice that they believed that what was important was to fly under the radar as much as possible so as they could keep preaching the gospel because this is how communities are transformed, how lives are transformed is by hearts becoming transformed. And so they planted churches. This was their method for reaching a community, was planting churches, was people like you and me going to work and talking to people, going to the gym and talking to people, people going out and witnessing and sharing Jesus Christ. This is the method. Now, there's a whole set of complexities that the Bible, you know, the fact that we live in, in a republic or a democracy or whatever you would call it, you know, and we have certain uh, voting and all this other stuff. We have these abilities they didn't have. We have systems they didn't have. So I'm not going to touch that right now. But I, I just want you to understand the principle that they were after hearts. They were after heart transformation. And so the idea is, is don't, don't go around making a problem. Don't draw attention to yourself, you know, over stuff like this. If you're going to polarize, if you're going to get in trouble over something, get in trouble because you love people so much that you're willing to tell the gospel and model the gospel for them. Get in trouble about that, if anything. Now, that's the submission to government expected. Next point here, number two, the submission to masters or slash employees. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, this is shocking, again, especially where we're at in 2023. Let me tell you a little bit about slavery in Peter's time. It's not exactly like, when we hear the word slavery, we think of the atrocity, the absolutely ab abhorrent, you know, evil, racist slavery that, that we're familiar with in this country. It was a little bit of, different of an institution in Peter's time. It didn't have as much to do with race as it had to do with social class in those days. You could sell yourself into slavery. A lot of people were. If you were born in slavery, your children were also born into slavery. You could uh, pay off a debt by being a slave, and then you could actually, if you liked your master, you could stay longer after that, and, and that was quite, quite common. There were physicians that were slaves. A lot of people People believe that Luke, who wrote the book of Luke and Acts, that he was a slave physician. They, they you know, speculate maybe Theophilus was his owner, um, you know, the beginning of the book of Luke and the book of Acts. I'd tell you, oh, Theophilus and, and so on. So it's a little bit different of an institution, but it still came down to the, your master's temperament because they did have laws that, you know, pretty much you could do whatever you wanted with your slave in the Roman Empire. And uh, if you wanted to go, you know, take them out, you could. And so it came down to what sort of a master you have, you know. Now, what was happening was 
in the early church, a large percentage of it were slaves. It was a huge percentage. Um, they speculate that 25 to 40 percent of the Roman Empire were slaves at any given point. We're talking millions upon millions of people, right? And so the question would be then, okay, you're, you got saved and you're a Christian, but your master didn't. Things are getting weird in your house now. How do you deal with that? You keep leaving devotionals and my daily bread all over the house and, you know, like, keep leaving your little Oswald Chambers books everywhere, uh, you know, writing God loves you on the refrigerator magnet, you know, but they don't like it. So what do you do? Well, these Christians that were serving primarily in these pagan homes, they were to be submissive to their masters with all fear. They were to submit to them and to show them proper respect. They weren't to cause problems. They were to become the model servant. Now, some of them were good and some of them were harsh. One poet wrote about the good ones and he called them the milk of human kindness. But there were also the harsh ones. The word means froward, unruly, surly, unfair. The Greek word actually translated harsh is where we get our term scoliosis. So they were crooked, right? Now, the masters didn't like the Christian slaves. They lived pure, humble, honest, obedient lives in their households. This made an impact on the masters, making them feel guilty, and it irritated them. As a result, the masters would punish Christian slaves without cause. However, they didn't want to replace them with non-Christian slaves because Christian slaves were more capable and did a better job. So this is a dilemma, right? How do I treat this person? How do I live in this sort of environment? Look what it says, verse 19. For this is commendable. If because of conscience towards God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, where it says consciousness of God, conscience of God, if you're aware of the fact that you're being a witness in this environment, let, that's commendable to God. Realizing, you know what? I'm in this relationship, but God put me here, and I'm probably the only light that's shining into this tyrant's life. Right? That's the idea, is he's saying, get this in your mind. This is commendable. Right? Let me pause for a second. Okay, This is an aside, but it goes right with this. If an abusive spouse pulls out this verse and says it's commendable for you to endure my harsh treatment, like abuse or something like that, that's not what this means. This is talking about the ancient institution of slavery in the Roman Empire. Okay, Never in a million years does a spouse submit to abuse, get out of the house if somebody's abusing you, get, figure something else out, you know, get out of there. But that's not what this is talking about. This is a different time. This is a different institution. Also, I want to put this out there. If you're going to work and your boss is demeaning you and you're crying on your lunch break, get a different job, you know, get out of that place. Okay, that's not what it's talking about. Now, Responding to unjust treatment with poor service and a bad attitude, that's what would be expected, but not these slaves. Peter's saying, you need to be different. Different world. You couldn't just go leave your slave master. You're going to get killed. You're going to get thrown in jail. You're going to, uh, it's a capital offense. So now verse 20, he says, for what credit is it if you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. In other words, if you're just like a lousy servant and you're getting in trouble all the time before, you know, because of that, like, that's no credit, you know, in God's eyes, you know? I mean, if you, if you show up to work and you just do poor work all the time and you're like, I'm always getting in trouble, man. It's just, I must be getting persecuted. Like, no, you're just getting the just consequences because you're a lousy employee. I mean, it's not, it has nothing to do with righteousness, you know what I mean? If anything, you're being unrighteous, you know, altogether. He says, but when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, 
You know, and no doubt Peter's thinking back to Jesus as he saw him on the night of his crucifixion, as he saw him getting beaten, as he saw his face so mangled that you couldn't even recognize it was a human. And he says, you know, if you're like Jesus, he's like, that's commendable, who came into this world and he suffered unjustly to do good. Now, what he's saying there is, you slaves, you know, you might be put there and you might be the only light that's coming in. Now, now Jesus came to a dark world that persecuted him and treated him terribly because he was the light that was coming in. Do you see the parallel? If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Doing the right thing, even when you have it bad, when things aren't fair, when you are placed, uh, faced with great difficulty, this is commendable before God. You know, and I think that's something that's really gone in our culture today, especially in the workplace, right? I mean, people are very quick to just, as soon as one tiny thing isn't going right at a job, just, you know, I'm out, man. There's no loyalty. There's no, uh, you know, commitment to anybody uh, anymore like there used to be. It's like we, we think as a culture we're not supposed to have any sort of hardship whatsoever. What if the hardship you're dealing with at work What if somebody could start to see that hardship as just all part of being a witness for Christ to that place? What would happen? Yeah, things aren't great. They could be better. It's not fair. Sometimes I deal with this and that. But you know what? I'm the light in this place. That's important. That's the difference between a kingdom-minded citizen of heaven versus somebody that still has their mind on earth only. It's a difference. Now, I got to admit, when I was studying this passage, I was like, how in the world could this be commendable to God to deal with hardship, to deal with some unruly, surly, crooked scoliosis? You know, I have scoliosis. <laughs> Didn't know until I went to the chiropractor a couple of years ago. And that explains a lot. How in the world could this be honorable, commendable to God, you know? This is, this is what I believe the Lord told me, and this is probably a word for you today, maybe. This proves just how concerned God is about people and just how concerned he is about using you to be the light to these people. He is concerned about one person even receiving light through you. Listen, I haven't wrapped my mind fully around this, but this is what's being said here, is if you are the one person that God has put in somebody's life to bring light where there's darkness, that's the greatest place that you can be. If that's where God's called you to be. Think about it. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, says the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.29. God is concerned with people. He's so concerned he even expects his people to deal with some harsh treatment sometimes, if that's what it takes to get to these other people. All those churches that we've been praying for every morning, Corey would pray for them every... If I said something like that to them, they'd be like, no kidding. You're just figuring this out? The submission to masters 
and employers expected. Now Peter tells his readers, you're called to be submissive to government, to masters, to employers. And now let's look at Jesus as your example. Verse 21. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Look at that there, those first few words of verse 21. For to this you were called. You're telling me I was called to suffer in these situations? Yes, for to this you are called. The call to salvation is a call to suffer. Regardless of whatever perverted health and wealth, prosperity gospel, name it and claim it, people are telling you, the call to salvation is a call to suffer. Paul said in, in Timothy, first and second Timothy, he says, uh, his least favorite promise in the Bible, all those who want to lead a godly life will suffer what? Persecution, right? Uh, in some way or another. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult to be a Christian in a pagan world. Somewhat. He says, leaving us an example. Jesus is an example. My niece comes over and, uh, man, I love it. I love that little girl. I got a picture of me baptizing her on my computer and it just, man, oh man. So she comes over to my house and she likes to, uh, she likes to draw and color. And, and I think, I remember one day she was tracing something. And you know, like the kid uh, takes a picture. I, mean, I think I brought a picture of it even, not of her, but. See how the paper's laid over the penguin and then the child is tracing? That's the Greek word here for an example. It literally means an underwriting. And that's what it means is, uh, you know, this image that you carefully and painstakingly would be traced. And see, Jesus is saying, here's my example. That's the underwriting there. And you're to lay on top of that and, and carefully imitate, emulate, just be exactly his example. That's the word that he used there. It's a beautiful term. The next one where he says there, he says, be an example, but he says to follow in his steps. And this has the idea of like a dad walking out through the snow and leaving imprints and uh, then the child coming carefully and, and putting their foot in each one, uh, careful not to mess up the other one. That's the idea. Jesus left the prince and we are to put our feet exactly where he went. He suffered in the place of others, paying the price of sin for sinners. In this way, he endured suffering for the sake of Christian slaves that, he, that Peter's talking to here. Uh, these slaves are also suffering for Jesus, meaning that they, by patiently enduring unfair punishment, they are showing a strong testimony of God's saving grace. Just like a child learns to carefully trace and underwriting, Christians should make a dedicated, uh, dedicated effort to pay close attention uh, to being like the Lord in our own lives. We should be very careful to place our feet exactly in the prince where he has gone. Now what Peter's gonna do is he's gonna go back to a text that's written about 700 years before Christ where he predicted and he talked about Jesus Christ uh, in detail. By the way, when somebody writes something about the future 700 years before it happens, and it happens to the T, you say, well, that's, that's pretty amazing. It must be that the Bible's written by God or something. I think it is. He goes back to Isaiah in verse 22, and he says, who committed no sin, 
nor was deceit found in his mouth. That word found, it means that after careful scrutiny, no sin, deceit, trickery, nothing impure discovered in Jesus Christ. Verse 23 says, who, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in turn. When his heart was broken, he didn't break hearts. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Even when facing the constant suffering from the angry crowd, our Lord Jesus never responded with words of revenge or retaliation. But he committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now that's a beautiful thing right there. He, he said, the situation I'm in, all of the evil that's happening in my life, all this stuff that's coming against me unjustly, I'm going to commit this into he who judges justly. God, the Father, he's got a plan, and it's righteous, and it's good. So all the junk that's going on in my life, I can continually, it's a continuous action here, I can continually just give it over to God. Say, you know what, I'm dealing with some grief in my life right now through people, it's unjust, it's unfair, but you know what, I'm the light, I'm called to be the light in this world, I have a purpose. So therefore I can take all these things that are happening to me and I can just give them over to the Lord and I can say, Lord, work through this, I trust your plan, I don't have it all figured out. And so you do, you're the one that judges righteously, you're the one that knows what's going on. I'm just called to live in fear of the Lord and honor all people and serve and love the brethren. <sighs> Who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That word bore, it goes back to priestly language from the temple. The high priest or the priest would take the, the suffering or the, uh, the sacrifice and he would bear it in a sense. He would, he would walk it up to the altar and he would present it at the altar. And that's the same language here. Peter's readers would have known. I love saying that. Peter's readers, Peter, <laughs> I'll say it a bunch of times. They would have known this priestly language. Peter's tying this into the Old Testament. He's saying Jesus himself is not only the high priest who carries the sacrifice, but he is the sacrifice. He bore our sins. He is the sacrifice. On the tree, that's just another word for saying the cross. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. When Christ died on the cross, he took sin, our sin, and when, that, when Christ died, we died by association with him. It says that we, uh, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. We're dead to the penalty of sin. We're dead to the ultimate domineering control of sin. Sin's no longer our master. And he's pointing to Jesus as an example through all this. He's saying, remember this as you're going through hardship. Jesus Christ died. He took your sins upon himself. He subjected himself to rough treatment to bring light and to do the right thing. Remember this. Get this in your mind. And he goes on and he says, by whose stripes you were healed. Now, this is not referring to physical healing in this context. This is a once-for-all action that happened at the cross. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, what happened to him on the cross 2,000 years ago or so, right around there, was applied to your account. That one-time event that happened and all of the things that it, that it means was applied to your account when you said yes to Jesus. That's what he means by, by whose stripes. Now, when he's talking about stripes, he's talking about the lacerations that come from being flogged or scourged, as the Romans called it. And I brought a picture of one of those as well. Um, this is 
something I dug up on the internet. So you see in the middle, um, there's a pole and the victim would be tied to the pole like this. And then over to the left-hand side, you have a scourge or a, a flagrum is what they would call it or a flog. And so what it is, is it's like this handle with, it's, you know, overall it's about this long. And the ends of it had these leather thongs that would have bone fragments or, you know, metals or whatever it would be, rocks, uh, you know, at the end of it. And so what would happen is over to the right, you see the pattern of how they would flog a human. They would go up and down the back in these ways. And literally there are accounts of this written where it's just all the way torn through to where you can see the organs in, in the person. And the, the language of this, um, you know, when you look into it, it's just the trickling blood, you know, coming just a completely open, exposed back, all of the organs. And that's what he's talking about by whose stripes. That's what he means, stripes, you see over there. Um, and he says that you need to remember Jesus who endured all kinds of hardship uh, for the sake of good, for the sake of you. It's, you know, it's, it's almost kind of like he's saying, I did this for you. Can you endure a little hardship for me? Can, can, your, can your Christianity, can, can, you do, can you deal with some difficulty to be my follower? Is, is what he would say. It's tough to be a Christian. It's not that tough. Christ suffered more unjustly than anyone else. He's the only perfect man. He faced misunderstandings and false accusations. His enemies maligned him. His family forsook him. His friends betrayed him. His disciples abandoned him. Law enforcers tortured him. Politicians had him executed. Despite having every right to complain, he remained silent. He could have called on God to judge his enemies, but endured undeserved judgment quietly. He endured all of this, not for his benefit, but for ours. By dying in our place on the cross, the just for the unjust, he healed our souls, enabling us to live a new life of righteousness. For you, we're like sheep going astray. But you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And he ends with this beautiful thing. He says, you know, remember what Christ did, what he's, what he's done for you. It might be, it might be hard sometime, but find great comfort in the fact that Jesus Christ is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You, every day of your life, every minute sleeping, awake, are under the careful eye of the loving shepherd. True Christians will suffer in some way. We're to be like Jesus in obedience, being obedience to, to the will of the Father. He suffered unjustly. He suffered mistreatment to reach you for your salvation. Now you suffer for his glory to reach the world he loves. And, and I, we're to see this as an honor. We're to see this as a privilege. 
Jesus was very clear when people were following him. He would say, look, if you want to follow after me, you know, you need to deny yourself. You need to deny yourself to be a follower of Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus gave the qualifications for discipleship in Luke 9, 23? For if anyone would come after me, he says, you need to deny yourself. You need to pick up your cross daily. And you need to follow me. Jesus made it plain. Jesus was not trying to fill churches. Jesus was not trying to get the offering box to overflow. He was not trying to do any of that stuff. He was fishing people out of a destiny of hell. And he did it by his own sacrifice. And he's invited us to be his followers and to be like him, to follow his example. Today you can have a whole new outlook on government and work. Submit to the laws of the land. Be a model citizen. When people see your conduct, God will be glorified. When it comes to your job and working in general, realize God put you there to display him to everyone. I don't know about how you view God, but I view God that he is sovereign, he's wise, he's in control, and I'm right where I'm supposed to be in life because he knows the time that I would be born. He knows the place I would live. He knows the job I'd work at. He knows the church I'd be part of. I believe that's the God I believe in. And I believe that he has an intention for everything. He doesn't waste things. He's efficient. My life is not a waste. There's a purpose for all of this. There's a purpose for you. Realize he's very concerned about your Christian influence on the people that you are around. Maybe he wants you to endure a little difficulty for the sake of getting light into the darkness. I'll leave you with this thought. One guy put it like this. He says, we're quicker to find a lawyer's phone number than we are a Bible verse calling us to endure hardship. Consider your reactions to when you were treated unfairly. What comes naturally? Ask yourself, are you more like Jesus who said rather than an eye for an eye that we are to turn the other cheek? It's only by his help that we can do that. Maybe you need to be filled with his spirit today to help you live like this. And let's turn to him and ask. Heavenly-